Hello book lovers, I'm Alex Clark and welcome back to the second instalment of our Summer Read two-part special here on the Vintage Podcast. Come rain, showers or maybe even a bit of sun, we're here to introduce you to the authors behind some of Vintage's newest and most anticipated books. jumping back in time to some live interviews I recorded with two very special authors, Ruth Fitzmaurice, who since publication has been all over the British and Irish press with her memoir, I Found My Tribe, a book about wild swimming and finding redemption in the freezing waves of the Irish Sea. But before that, Neil Mukherjee. We are going to be starting with a wonderful novelist whose work has been praised by writers as perceptive and as distinguished as A.S. Byatt, Rose Tremaine and Edmund White. And indeed, A.M. Holmes said he writes like a painter where modern life tears at tradition. His second novel, The Lives of Others, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won the Encore Award. I was the chair of judges for that prize and I can break cover to tell you that we were wowed beyond belief by its range and versatility. Now comes Neil Mukherjee's third novel, A State of Freedom. Please welcome him to the stage to talk about it. Neil, number three. Yeah. <laughs> just, just tell us in a few words what it's about, what it, what it is. Um, it's a novel in sections, and I wanted to write a novel uh, where I was going to be experimenting with form, and I wanted to write a disrupted novel and a novel with all the connective tissue taken out. And I wanted to see how much one could take away from a realist novel and still have something that could answer to the term novel. So that's how the book came about. When you say what you could take away from a realist novel, yeah. you're trying to inhabit a different kind of genre or to create a different kind of genre? Well, um, it's, it's, it's such an elastic form that I think you can do pretty much anything you want with it and you can still get away with uh, uh, calling it a novel. Like, you know, you can have a loose baggy monster or you can have something like a blade of light like I don't know, Sunday in the country or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was also trying to have a conversation with a novel that came out about 40 years ago in a free state by V.S. Naipaul, which I think is a, is, is an, a blazing masterpiece. So, um, What was the conversation? What's the nature of your dialogue with that book? I, I wanted to see if one could write a novel in sections that did not join in any kind of obvious way, nor in any kind of David Mitchell-y way, and still <laughs> have all the things put together by you, the reader, actually, um, and see if I can get away with it. Because I, I, I wanted to bring the reader in, but not in a way that says, dear reader, here you are, now finish the book. It would have all the trappings of a realist novel, a strong story or several strong stories, 
and then I wanted the reader to just bring the five things together mm -hmm. any which way they wanted. There are no right answers to this book, I feel. But this is largely done through establishing this cast of characters, am I right? Well, the cast of characters change from section to section. So the first section that you read uh, about a man and his child who are touring India, uh, they don't come back in the novel again. And some characters from certain sections will come back, but there are no hard and fast rules about it. As I said, not in any David Mitchell kind of way. I'm really fascinated uh, by this idea that you are trying to work in the tradition of realism, um, because of obviously the thing that you've just described there is what happens in life. It is realistic in and, that sense. And break it as well, to see if we could not subvert that form in a certain way. And I wanted to write an experimental kind of book, an experiment with form, but, you know, form seems to have become a domain for, uh, you know, because I'm Indian, no one thinks that I can write about form because form has become a white guy kind of thing. Uh, um, tell me about uh, that. Just tell me what you mean by oh, that. Oh, I could go on forever. Like, well, you know, don't go on <laughs> forever because clipboard, <laughs> but go on for a short amount of time. I, I, I feel no amount of an Indian, like, you know, whatever I write, because I'm Indian, I could write a... Novels with abstract thought molecules set in a different galaxy, and people would still call it a family saga. <laughs> so, uh, 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 and and you know, I've lost that battle. I'm not going to try to fi fight that battle anymore. So I write what I want to write, really. So and yeah. But on that on that note, <laughs> um, that perception of what an Indian novel is can be should be has changed a lot, has it not, over the past it few It has, decades. actually, and I feel I don't think we should be talking about the Indian novel at all in some ways. We should be talking about the Indian novels, I feel, mm -hmm. definitely in the plural, because all of us do something different. And, um, and as for me, you know, and, and I think as for most Indian writers who write in the English language, you will find out that the, the thing that they are most influenced by is actually the uh, Anglophone tradition, the European tradition. Uh, and um, and the American novel, which I came to quite late in my life, actually, to be honest. But um, I think of myself as being in the tradition of European writing and not Indian writing, actually. And do so. you mean, when you say that, Victorian novels, for example, is that, or do you mean modernism? Or I, I don't just mean Victorian novels, no. I also mean modernism. I mean these Edwardian writers, like, say, Forster, I think. Um... I don't know. I mean, I mean, what would you call Naipaul? I mean, he's he's of he's an international writer. I yeah. think you know. And so Mann has generous. been a very yes. you know Thomas Mann has been a very big influence on me, and he's very much in the Central European tradition actually. So, uh, one of the things that's really key in this book, uh, which does take on contemporary India, is this idea of movement of migration. Yeah. yeah. How important yeah. was that? Because. Whereas you say there are lots of different sections, yeah. keeping alive that idea of moving between them is clearly very important. I, I um, you know, this great uh, European filmmaker, uh, Mikhail Haneke, he once said that uh, the 21st century is going to be defined by one thing and one thing only, the mass movement of people, which, which is so completely true yeah. and, and, you know, profoundly true, I think, of our times. But I wanted to look at not immigration, which is another, I feel, can become a kind of stereotyping prison for the non-white writer. But I wanted to write about the internal movement of people within India for, you know, whatever reason, economic migration or, you know, the search for a better kind of life for, you know, whatever reason. And I wanted to look at internal migration in India. 
And I also wanted to fracture the novel in terms of form to look at movement as well. Mm. So this is my attempt to do that. Meeting you occasionally outside of places like this, I know that you are a man who's very frequently on a journey himself. You're always packing your suitcase to go somewhere. I mean, you've done an awful lot of actual sort of on-the-ground research, haven't you? Yeah, I have. You know, I don't live in India anymore, so which is why when people ask me to write op-ed pieces on contemporary India, I sort of push back against it, say, no, I don't want to do that. Um, but I do travel, yes. I, I travel... Uh, I travel. I I have a complicated relationship with travel, but you know, I mean, I don't belong to that great uh, uh, generation of travel writers who, uh, um, I don't know. You know, Amitav Ghosh travels a lot. I mean, he's going to far flung, uh, far flung places and writing complicated and complex books about them. I'm not like that. Um, my travels are mostly private, but then you know, everything is copy. So you 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 pick up things along the way and stuff. So. Yeah. I guess my last question to you is going to be, you said at the very beginning what you wanted to do was break this and try to get away with it. Do you think you have got away with it? Oh, that's for others to say. I knew that you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew that you were going I, to say I that. Have but a do you okay, think you okay, have? I, uh, yes, I do. I have, a, <laughs> I, I have a very strong answer to give to why I think this is a novel. But I should not tell other people why to think of why they should think of this book as a novel they can come up with a better answer or a different answer okay that multiplicity that plurality of voices for me is quite important okay yeah, yeah. that is the challenge that you set this audience yeah. and okay. their audiences yeah. thank you very thank much you. thank Neil you Neil thank you quite a lot of unanswered questions there um however I'm really, really looking forward to a state of freedom. I love Neil's writing. But we are staying with the idea of our very human desire to search for freedom, movement, fulfillment, whatever the circumstances. And in this case, the opportunity for that is provided by the natural world. This is a book that I know has been fervently embraced by the vintage team. It tells an extraordinary story of resilience, love, and how sometimes the most extreme circumstances can produce unexpected happiness. Will you welcome to the stage Ruth Fitzmorris, the author of I Found My Tribe. We meet again. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, I said to you just before when we were chatting, this is such a great title for a book because what you actually think is, what tribe? How did you find them? It just immediately begs questions. So, what tribe? Yeah, most people are probably thinking, yes, that is me in my swimsuit. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, <laughs> it's a nice swimsuit. Let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> um, yeah, the tribe is, is actually a place, really. Uh, I'm from a seaside town in Ireland called Greystones. And the tribe is the place where I swim most days with my friends. And we throw ourselves into the cold Irish sea. Yeah. So which takes some doing. And you're saying absolutely all weathers. Yeah, the only thing that would stop me is really rough sea because we dive off. There are steps that go into the water and I'm not really into being pummeled. So I don't swim every day. If it's too rough, um, I, I might not swim, but most days, yeah. But essentially you drop your kids off at school, you grab yeah. your towel from the back seat of your car and off you go. 
Yeah, and, and, and I have to say too, I mean, I always thought sea swimmers were the most self-righteous hippies that were out there, you yeah. know, so kind of annoying. Um, uh, the, you the mean you're ev- evangelical no. sort of. Yeah. This is amazing. Everybody should do this. And um, is it amazing? Should everyone do it? Yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> 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 but I don't want to say that. It, for me, it's something yeah important. Obviously, I wrote about it. Yeah, I referred mm. to it in the beginning as a, as a kind of refuge for you, and you talk about this idea of tribe as a place. Yeah. Um, you have another tribe. That tribe is your family, uh, your husband, and your five children. Um, but the idea of home became a rather pro- more problematic one for you, didn't it, um, about 10 years ago? Yeah, so my home is is kind of a public space is probably the best way to describe it. It's quite a small house. It has a lot of people in it, and uh, including my husband who has advanced motor neuron disease. So he, um, he breathes with a ventilator and he can only move his eyes. So he has an eye gaze computer to talk. And uh, then we have five children uh, ranging from 11 to five and a couple of pets thrown in there. um, And yeah, 24 hour nursing, which uh, it's agency work. So the people uh, circulate a lot. So we get a lot of new people in and out through our home a lot, uh, which obviously is a bit disruptive. So uh, the swimming became the cove kind of became a refuge place just to to exist away from all that, really. Yeah. And obviously, what you could do by going there every day was just it was you and the elements. Yeah, it 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 didn't start. It, it started off as a way of helping my friend. It's kind of a strange thing. Uh, one of my best friends, she, uh, her husband was in a in a, an accident on his bicycle on the motorway, and is paralysed. And they were both sea swimmers, and we thought they were kind of self righteous hippies until um, one one uh, the year anniversary of his accident. Uh, I watched him swim around the headland just using his arms. He he did it on the anniversary of his accident, and it was amazing. And my friend was standing at this on the sidelines with her baby watching him looking very sad and myself and another friend looked at her and said oh damn we're gonna have to swim with her now because she has to get back swimming and so that's how it started Uh, so uh, over time then we didn't set out to do it every day but over time it just became a thing that we did and uh, we became our own little group and just got great comfort uh, for, uh, among each other just to to deal with our crazy lives. <laughs> it strikes me that, that one thing about the sea is that it is both a constant and constantly changing. So it's yeah. always there. It's always going to be in flux, going in, going out. It can be turbulent, it can be still, but there's just the fact of it. It doesn't care about you. Yeah. Um, and that idea of something like that to which you abandon yourself virtually daily when the rest of your life is really an exercise in dealing with uncertainty, isn't it? That I wonder how those two things oh God, connect yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, every time, I'm always petrified. You never get used to it when you're standing in front of the cold sea. Your brain is telling you, what are you doing? Don't do this. So I suppose it's a little victory every day when you come back out. And a friend of mine always says, which I really like, um, they say, you might not like the person who dives in but you always like the person who comes back out so it's a bit like a a reset button you know you just no matter what kind of crappy day you're having you know you're going to feel good when you come out of that water you never regret a swim and see I sound like a total hippie it just happens (laughs) I'm sorry (laughs) Um, thinking about the things that you did have to adjust to very very Kevin and that your family did now you were pregnant with your third child weren't you when yeah when your husband was diagnosed 
You then went on to have two more children, twins. And so you now have a very, very large family. Yes. Um, and that's a lot of intense change, movement, emotion. I wonder how the children, you write about them very humorously in the book. They become real characters. Yeah. How they sort of form themselves around this kind of very uncertain situation. Yeah, like actually the kids, um, obviously I'm addicted to having children or something, but uh, apart from that, they, they really do, t because they live so much in the moment, um, they have taught me a lot about accepting things and they're so much more adaptable than adults. We're just really, uh, I learn from them all the time because they just accept things as they are. They accept their dad the way he is and, uh, and, and as I say, live very much in the moment. So I think we were lucky in that way, having young children, it helped us. Uh, not really think about the future and just cope with the day-to-day -day and, and, and be distracted by that really and get on with our lives, you know. Can you just explain to us a little bit finally about the process of writing about it? I wondered to what extent writing was another way of finding a tribe, if a tribe is a place, another place to go to. Yeah, I mean, I, I often think if, if my husband hadn't gotten MND, we were both very creative people, but obviously we got married and we were very happy and in love and um, kind of a complacency sets in, especially when you're, when you're having babies and in that space. I was very happy and writing was something that I thought, yeah, I might do that someday or I'll get back to it. And uh, I wonder if I didn't have the urgency of that creative need because of Simon being sick, Simon was my husband, um, would I just be this wife who was sitting kind of wondering, God, I'll change the colour of that room and redecorate? Or would that writing be something that I... You it was something that, write. Yeah, but it, it was something that I never got round to. So I feel really lucky that um, our crazy lives gave me that urgency that it was something that I had to do and I kind of found my writing voice through crazy circumstances, yeah. Well, we're glad you did. <laughs> it really, really is an amazing book. Um, thank you so much for telling us about it. Now, just finally, before you go, I said to you when we were talking earlier, I hope at the very least someone brings Bovril and perhaps something stronger yeah. for after the swim. And yeah. you said, well, sometimes, not really in the week, but sometimes when we're doing night swims. And I kind of went, what? So you throw yourself into yeah. the Irish Sea at night time? Well, the, the hippie thing became a theme and then there was full moon stuff and then there was kind of um, <laughs> nakedness. Um, so you'll have to read the book to find out about yeah, that. Yeah, will, but, but there's hot tea afterwards, surely it's fine. Tea, <laughs> tea. Nobody wants tea after going in the Irish Maybe a bit sea. of whiskey, okay, yeah. Thank Who knows? you very much. <laughs> Ruth Fitzmaurice, thank you so much. Thank you. Adam Thorpe, whose novel Missing Faye follows a spirited, restless 14-year-old who goes missing from a Lincoln council estate. Is she a runaway or a victim? Just another face on a poster gradually fading with time. Friend of the podcast, Will Rycroft, spoke to Adam to hear more. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the Vintage Podcast. Um, it's, it's so interesting, Missing Faye, uh, a book that sort of centres around a missing girl. And um, you wait as a reader for a book like that to come along, and then two come along at once. This year we've also seen Reservoir 13 by John McGregor, which similarly has, has a missing girl at the beginning. And interestingly, I think both books actually use that as a, a springboard to, to look at a much wider community. Yours is urban and his is sort of more rural. Um, where did the sort of idea for this book come from? Where 
was it that you wanted to sort of look at these individual characters or did you always think that you wanted to look at a wider community? I think it's sort of accumulated, really. I mean, I've been interested in these characters for about 17 or 18 years. Um, I decided to improvise some stories uh, in a burst of inspiration uh, in the year 2000. Mm. And improvise, I mean like a jazz improvisation. You really don't know where, what note you're going to play next. You just go with it. Um, And that's why I managed to perhaps uncover in myself, a character like Sheena, who is a character I'd not normally touch, you know, in terms yeah. of my characterization in a normal novel or short stories or whatever. Um, so I, I've been sort of accompanying them, really, at various versions and rewrites and so on. So they became incredibly familiar to me. Mm. And one of these characters, Faye, um, wasn't originally a girl who was going to disappear. What I was fascinated by was this relationship she has with her dog and the dreams of Hollywood and everything. Um, I wanted to bring these various characters together in some way, in a locale, particular locale in Lincolnshire. And I was very struck by several news items which involved missing teenagers and reading about them and how many teenagers go missing and how many people go missing in, in this country. Um, and some of these cases were very harrowing, but what I was interested in was their existence as missing people. Mm. We, we, we get very bound up, if we read the newspaper or listen to the radio, we get bound up in these lives that would otherwise have gone completely unremarked. And when they've, before they're found, they occupy some very strange sort of half-existence somehow. Uh, especially as you have members of the family talking about them and so on. And it was this feeling that I wanted to capture in the novel, I think, of this girl who's both with us and isn't, mm. and we don't know what's happened to her. And, and so it's, it's a s- suspended being, really. Because she, she has touched the lives of each of the other characters in the book. But as you say, for most of the book, she is an absence. She is a, a yeah. poster on a wall or in a shop. And it's, it's sort of how their lives go on without her that sort of becomes fascinating. Um, I'm intrigued to hear you mention Sheena there. Was she was she the sort of first of the characters to come along, or was there? Or can you remember which of these characters came to your mind first? They all came in a period of two weeks. Oh, amazing! Okay. Yeah. Now, so you mentioned that sort of Sheena was a character that's sort of out of your comfort zone, if you like. It's quite a. It's an extraordinary character. She is a woman, sort of in her later years, but who is charged with this kind of sexual energy, um, and has an extraordinary character and personality. Where did she come from? I mean, you mentioned sort of burst of creativity, but is she, is she based on anybody in particular, or was it just from your mind? I think, possi- yes, possibly. Um, we all know shopkeepers from walking into shops. Yeah. Um, and I've met one or two women, late 40s, early 50s, um, stuck behind the counter, as you might say, in their shop. Mm. Tremendously hardworking, dynamic, you know, but just stuck somehow and frustrated. Um and I think, what's your relationship with them? Going into the shop, buying something, and you feel this energy off, off them. Um, and they've always got to be charming. They've always got to smile. They've always got to, they're selling something basically. Yeah. You're both, and you're both, you know, in their place, in their home, almost in a sense, workplace. Certainly, if they own the shop, mm. you're there, in in their territory. Mm. And at the same time, you are, as a client, you are somehow. 
um, quite high status in the sense they want you to buy something. You know. So it was this sort of relationship between the client and the shopkeeper that I found very interesting. Um, and there she is. She's she's running a kiddies clothes shop, you know, an innocent kind of shop in a sense. Yeah. Um, and behind it is all this sort of raging frustration, really, um, feeling of, of failure and so on. And I realised fairly early on that actually she was going to be in one, in some ways, the most sympathetic character in the in the mm. book because she has a relationship with Faye mm. that is in a sense, quite selfless and based on real affection and there's no judgment. Um, she doesn't have any kids herself, of course, and that's one of the great frustrations in her life, I think, mm. although she claims she doesn't like kids because she has to face them every day in the shop. <laughs> but So in a way, she's a kind of, she's a kind of mild heroine in, in the novel, I think, um, and I felt more and more sympathetic towards her, yeah. and yet she, I felt so, she's so alien to me in a way. I think readers will feel very sympathetic to her. I think because she, she's very well drawn. There's another shopkeeper, uh, Mike, who has the sort of second-hand bookshop. And he, what was what really made me laugh at reading was that because he's quite cantankerous and he drinks too much and he almost abhors his customers, um, except the ones that he can make a pretty penny out of. Um, and it just reminded there was a news story. I don't know if you saw it about a, a second-hand bookshop owner who was, was sort of charging people for going into the shop because he was bored of people coming in and sort of. <laughs> browsing yeah. and not actually buying anything exactly like Mike yeah exactly I just thought Mike exists it's amazing yeah. I mean was there a character that you enjoyed writing more than any of the others I mean I suspect possibly Sheena that you had a lot of fun with her I think Sheena I, I mean what's very strange about Sheena is I found her surprisingly easy she did a lot of the writing in a sense right. um, although she's so, you know so com- apparently so completely alien um, she led she led the story and, and certainly when you're writing a story, you can find a character that's sort of blocking you. Mm. And in, in one sense, I think I found Mike, who's apparently much closer to my world, certainly, mm. um, quite difficult because he's a blocker. Mm-hmm. And so it was quite difficult to keep the action moving and so on. And until he fell in love with Cosmina, Cosmina the Romanian care worker, mm. Romanian immigrant, um, things were quite blocked, and it was that. I mean, the first version of the, of the story, which is a long time ago now, um, she, he fell in love with a, a, a Chinese woman mm. who was subsequently executed in China. So the whole thing became tragic, mm. um, and he felt terrible guilt because he hadn't done it, he wouldn't do anything to help her and so on. Yeah, um, That didn't feel right for this novel, so he, he, he transmuted into something else really and when uh, Cosmina comes along it seemed an obvious choice and Cosmina's the nurse for his mother in the rest home mm. and also I wanted to present a contrast with Sheena mm. I mean they, they, they have to look at each other every day it's a narrow street you know <laughs> and they bang opposite each other year after year yeah. and there's this mutual not loathing but, but dislike obviously mm. and suspicion but there's somehow also an affection mm. and he's very vulnerable to any any compliment that Sheena throws at him immediately <laughs> goes weak at the knees and I think that that was a nice sort of you know tension in the thing yes familiarity breeds contempt but he's a sucker for a sort of you know any kind of compliment that comes completely yeah yeah <laughs> um, you mentioned Kuzmina there the, the Romanian immigrant as you say in, uh, who works in a, in a care home um, obviously with a character like her and with I think this sort of ability that you've had here to draw characters from different backgrounds I felt that it did work very well as an almost state-of-the-nation novel. We have been through sort of the whole Brexit referendum process, and there was a lot of talk about 
sort of isolated communities who were not being listened to. Uh, we had not heard their voices in traditional media. And yet I felt that in this book there were lots of people who were being given a voice, who were being allowed to sort of articulate their frustrations and their sort of prejudices. Was that in your mind whilst you were writing it, or is it, do you feel that you only see that once you've finished a book? And can well, I think, I think, like Alverton, I wanted to give a voice to the provinces, provincial England, mm. which is very often forget, forgotten about or patronised or whatever. Mm. And I particularly wanted to give a voice to people living in a bit of England that... You know, you don't drive through Lincolnshire. It's always a bit, it's a land that time forgot, is, yeah. is the joke, you know. Um, but it wasn't that conscious, because people are much the same wherever they are. I certainly didn't want to write about a London community. I knew that. But England's actually a very large country. It's a small island, but it's a large mm. country. Britain is, you know, it could be anywhere in Britain. You get these same people who feel, who, who are out of the circuit, out of where it's, where it's all at. And yet, for them, they're where it's all at. And I think I wanted... London is hardly mentioned in the, in the novel. No, absolutely. That, that was very important to me. And it is this rather exotic place. But actually a place that isn't terribly important. No, I see. They're sort of getting on with their lives, aren't they? It yeah. doesn't really matter what's going on in London. Cause it no, exactly. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, in fact, and much more important to cities like Sheffield and Manchester and so on. Um, and that probably comes from my own family, who are um, on my father's side of Derbyshire, born and bred. And my father would always say, everyone in London, you know, you'd, you'd think England, the centre of England was, 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 was this pyramid in the middle of Piccadilly and everything's piled up there in Piccadilly Circus. Yeah. Know? And in fact, uh, you know, things go on in other places as well and so that was in the back of my head I think the whole time I was writing it um, so I the Brexit thing was was quite clearly unexpected I mean I started this novel before Brexit mm. um, David Cameron made the decision to have a referendum actually in January 2012 when the action of this the, the, the girl goes missing mm. Faye goes missing in January 2012 so I suddenly thought people are going to think she's the spirit of England <laughs> you know who's gone missing you know <laughs> catastrophe of Brexit because yeah. I do think it's a total catastrophe yeah. it's it, completely idiotic and so on but it it, it, it it made the novel have a little bit more relevance I think in a sense because the, the, the guys you know in the Howard chapter the ex-steel workers who sit around playing Monopoly mm. they are possibly UKIP supporters yeah. um, and anti-immigrant and so on but in a very gentle way I just wanted to include them but they were there before Brexit in fact yeah. and one thing obviously is very important I should say, should say is I'm focused on Lincolnshire in the end before um, the referendum I might say because UKIP something was happening in Lincolnshire that was getting me very worried and that right. was UKIP obviously the rise of UKIP yeah. and the fact that um, there are places like Boston in Lincolnshire, drugs capital of Britain, yeah. you know, um, however many, whatever percentage of immigration there is there. Mm. And I was actually quite impressed, reading the Lincolnshire Echo and so on, actually of the tolerance level in Lincolnshire. Mm. Uh, and the immigrants have been absorbed. People understand that you have to have people working in the fields and so on. And so Lincolnshire is mu was much more of a positive place, in fact, than... than and what was happening is UKIP were going in there, Nigel Farage and so on were going in there, stirring everything up. Um, so I think it was a place, it was like a, a, a test tube, really, for the rest of, of Britain. Mm. You, you mentioned Alton then. Um, 
your previous novel, which similarly tells the story of a location through the various people who've, who've lived in it. Um, in that book, we have very different ways of hearing their story. There are documents, there are sort of, you know, testimony. Uh, this book, you do focus on the individual characters, but it is all still told in a, from a third-person narration. And as somebody who has written in many different forms, I know that you will have thought very carefully about the form that this book took. What, what was your sort of reasoning for, for, as I say, focusing on individual characters but from a third-person narration rather than a, a first-person narration? I find when I'm writing a novel, I often switch after quite a few you know, chapters oh, right. from third-person to first-person and then back again. <laughs> um, and that's because with third-person, you have a little bit more distance. Um, and it's, it's actually quite hard to explain because third person, when you're still inside the head of the character, still allows you to have a little bit more distance, even though technically it's almost the same as first person from their point of view. Mm. Everything's from their point of view. You don't see anything from any, uh, anybody else's point of view. It's, 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 a, it's a feeling, it's a sensibility, I think, that, that, that it just allows you just to not be completely overwhelmed by the selfhood of the individual just to have that little bit of distance and that it helps in the writing and I think for this novel it was quite important because you say it's a state of the nation novel in many ways, very particular moment in time in a very particular place Mm. and um, yeah, third person just felt uh, third person but staying within the the head of the character, Mm. behind their eyes seeing everything their point of view felt right for that kind of novel it works particularly well, I think, with, with a character like Mike, who is almost haunted by Faye, yeah. or the idea of her. Um, she is a sort of haunting presence through the book. We've already sort of mentioned about how she's an absence there. Many people reading it may be thinking, am I going to find out what happened to Faye? But it's not really the point of the book, is it? Yeah. Was that always the case when you were writing it? Did you think, I, I know what happens to her, but it, the reader doesn't need to know? Yes, that's a very interesting question, because... In my own mind, I know what happened to Faye, and actually, all the clues are there mm. in the novel. And if somebody really wants to know what happened to Faye, then it's all there. I'm going to get you to tell me once we press stop on the microphone. That's what's going to happen. But anyway, Adam, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you about Missing Faye. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much. And that concludes our Summer Read special. If you didn't catch the first episode, you can follow the link in the description or go to po.st forward slash vintage summer to listen and take a closer look at all of the books featured in the episodes. Thank you to all of our literary guests and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to our podcast or following at Vintage Books on Twitter. And if you enjoy the Vintage Podcast, why not rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on? Until next time.